All right, so alaikum everyone, and welcome to our Q&A discussion with Haja Abrafi. Um, thank you, Haja, for giving us such an amazing khutbah, always information-packed, history-packed. It's always mm -hmm. an amazing um, time to learn from you, from you. So thank you for returning to our space and gracing us with all of your knowledge and wisdom, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, thank you very much. And thank you to all of the sisters who came out to celebrate Juneteenth and to learn a little bit more about the history of it and to find the connection between Islam and Allah's mandate that we free slaves. That was the central point of the Qutbah. And also making connection between Palestine mm -hmm. and Juneteenth. We'll talk about that a little bit later, hopefully. Good. So Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. All right, would anyone like to start us off with the first question? No pressure at all. Yeah, I have a question. I think we, we should have a discussion on that because um, actually, I, honestly, I think like any um, system of thought, like whether it's Islamic or Christian or like even socialist um, ha has like a, some sort of a dark history that mm. actually goes um, against the, the overwhelming world teaching of the um, system of thought. Like, uh, because um, because uh, slavery was not really abolished with the advent of Islam and um, and the Islamic Empire still practiced slavery and um, so so I, I wonder um, how Hajja would uh, think about the practice of uh, slavery in the Islamic world in the Middle Ages and um, yeah I think that's number one and number two is uh, what do you think of uh, concubinage uh, which is uh, sort of like a form of slavery and uh, yeah, I know it's it's a sort of more of a Persian tradition for the pre-Islamic Persian kings have have like over ten thousand concubines, and but but then but then the later the Islamic caliphs um, after concur concurring Persia also adopted this tradition. So yeah, so 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 I wonder what were your thoughts on this? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think I'd like to start with the second part first, and that is. There is no excuse in Islam for concubinage. It is definitely abolished. Uh, the quote unquote temporary marriages, uh, so many things that were really quite, how would I call it, disrespectful to women. They have been abolished without question. So if there are cultures that are practicing these things, they need to get in touch with their Quran they need to get in touch with their creator and ask themselves in their hearts if they can still make this acceptable. It's not acceptable to Allah, so that's on them. But it's definitely not acceptable in Islam. Uh, it's very clear that a man can have as many as four wives, but those are wives. They're not concubines. They're not temporary um, wives. And the Quran speaks very clearly about not forcing, quote unquote, your slave girls into any kind of, um, how we call it, well, into prostitution. Okay, it's not allowed. So basically, if it's going on, it has nothing to do with Islam. Um, so I hope that gives you some kind of an idea. Okay, as far as slavery itself, which was, a pra was practiced in Islamic cult cultures and Islamic countries, even in the Middle Ages, and we know that even to the present day, there are people who are enslaved in the Islamic world. That doesn't make it correct, number one. Number two, it's very clear from the history that there were different kinds of slavery at different points in history in different cultures. And sometimes a slave was someone who had been captured in war, or sometimes there were people who had done a criminal act and they had to do some kind of restitution. Then another kind of slavery was simply where a destitute person might see a wealthier person and ask to become their slave. And basically they were asking for that person to take care of them, to house them and clothe them and feed them in exchange for doing work for them. And it would be pretty much comparable to what we call in this culture an au pair, 
a lot of times you have young people who will come into a culture and they will agree to maybe babysit in the household or do certain chores in the household, not for money, but just in exchange for having a place to live. Um, I guess you might call it kind of like indentured servitude. They're just working for a period of time and they're not being paid for it, but they are getting something of value. So I'm saying that say there are different kinds of slavery. And as a matter of fact, the slavery that took place in the United States, uh, it's been described as the peculiar institution. Okay, there's a book by that name by an author, Terrence Stamp. And what he was pointing out is how very peculiar this US system was, where traditionally someone might be enslaved because they were a captive of war, maybe they you know, did something wrong, or they were just enslaved, but their children would not be enslaved. Their grandchildren would not be enslaved. There was no such thing as slavery in perpetuity. It just did not exist anywhere in the history of the world until just 500 years ago here in this culture. And that is part of what has made it so difficult to eradicate the racism that has, has come out even after slavery or chattel slavery ended. The, hatred that is so ingrained in this culture that people who were once enslaved are now able to get up and send people to the moon, become the president, and you have certain other people who just think that they should be privileged. They just will not accept that they are not superior. They're just human beings like everybody else. So uh, I think that kind of speaks to the issue. There's slavery and then there's racism as a result of slavery. And as Hassan and I were discussing uh, beforehand, one of the things that seems to be indicated with the Quran, with Allah's instructions about slavery, even though we are to free slaves, et cetera, et cetera, there was not a blanket and now all slaves are free. And the indication seems to be that slavery is so ingrained in the culture that if, how can I put it? If it couldn't just be eradicated out of hand, okay? And part of what happened in the United States is because it was cut off with first the Emancipation Proclamation and then Juneteenth, and it was very, very cut and dry. It left a very, very deep psychological scar among those people who simply had to give up their privilege. And that's where, where they ended up just directing their hatred toward their slaves. They didn't direct it toward the people who, you know, they didn't direct it toward Abraham Lincoln, except for the fact that one of them assassinated him, you know, mm -hmm. but the, the hatred was actually directed more toward those former slaves and it's still going on. That's what we're still uh, really trying to work on in this culture right this moment with the critical race theory that is now the newest buzz term. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, that's such an interesting point, um, you know, and it's not just with slavery, you look at all of the reforms that Islam um, brought about in pre in the Jahiliya or time of ignorance pre Islamic um, period, um, from the way that there was no limit on how many wives a man could take uh, could marry. Um, and mm -hmm. women didn't have a right to divorce. And, um, you know, even with things like alcohol, like, everything was gradually phased out. Um, mm -hmm. And not only was it gradually phased out, first it was purified. So it was like, first don't come to the prayer drunk. And then it was, you know, uh, all of these gradual phases so that because God knows us better than we know ourselves and God knows how the human psychology reacts. You know, you tell a child not to touch a hot stove and what do they want to do? Um, mm -hmm. But I think what's so beautiful about the Islamic method is that it uses intrinsic motivation and it's like, Hey, you want to be close to God. You want to, you know, have a highest uh, or higher status with God then do this good thing. And so people automatically intrinsically want to do this um, rather than feeling forced um, or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or, you know, fought against and then react to that and then create, you know, this chaos and, and further divide. Um, yeah. So I appreciate you highlighting that, um, Sister Aberfi. Any other questions or reflections? For reflection, if I may, um, that was a great, I, I am very bad in history. 
<laughs> I learned. Could you hear me? Yes. I can. Yes, uh, yes, this is the first time ever I learned exactly how the uh, Juneteenth came about and uh, what's the history behind it. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating for me. It was really great information to learn. Thank you very much. Alhamdulillah. Thank you. Thank you. I have a question. Assalamualaikum. Um, I always enjoy uh, your 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 conversation and what you share with us. And um, it's so lovely that we have a historian in the midst. I'm sure you're not the only, but it's a beautiful. <laughs> Um, the last thing you said about um, the anger of the slaveholders um, with their slaves because of having to get up, uh, give up the uh, monetary value um, that came with the uh, free slave help. Exactly. I have a problem with that because that's not just the blanket explanation, right? That's just part of the explanation because obviously the hate came before they were actually slaves. The hate came once they became chattel of uh, the United States. Um, once they came over and were brought, then the hate between the uh, prospective slave owner and the uh, now enslaved individual that that seems to me to have been hate from the very beginning mm -hmm. not necessarily something that came along mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well i agree with you uh but i would actually divide it up a bit there was that hatred that uh omar ibn saeed spoke of when he said that he had this master who was a weak evil man who did not believe in God at all, and he neither read nor prayed, okay? He basically was probably better suited for the days of Jahaliyyah. He was just an ignorant, brutish type of man. And along with that went hatred and contempt for this man who was in fact very, very well educated, okay? Uh, so I think there is that kind of hatred. There has to be a huge amount of hatred that goes along with some of the things which we tend not to even want to mention them, okay? But the, the lynchings, the beatings, the rapes, the selling away babies from their mothers, anything you can think of happened to those African slaves, those enslaved Africans. And this went on for 250 years. So it actually, not only was it, it hateful and evil, but it got multiplied with each generation. So that's one kind of hate. The other kind of hate was directly related to the fact that they hated to give up their privilege. See, when they were hating us and enslaving us, they were still privileged. But once they had to give up their privilege and they had to give up the money that came along with that privilege, that created a completely different kind of hatred or maybe you could say even an extended type of hatred. But I would say that the hatred was on more than one level. Uh, recently, there was a video of this white man in the deep South with a big, huge Confederate flag. And he was talking to what looked like probably a black minister, okay? And the black minister asked him, well, why are you holding that flag? And he said, well, and he was very angry and agitated and he had a long red beard. He said, because it's my heritage and stuff like that, you know, and we lost our farm, you know, uh, in, um, you know, as a result of the uh, Civil War. We lost our farm. We lost everybody. So the minister says to him, who was working that farm? <laughs> okay. So that created a whole nother level. And then somehow this man who's holding this flag just kind of sputters a little bit. And then he says, well, we were working our farm. We were poor. My family worked the farm. And then he literally says to this black man, do you know how much a slave cost back then? <laughs> wow. You know, as if, oh, okay, now that we understand how much we cost, then I understand why you have that flag, you know. Yeah. 
Uh, but it was amazing that he could have that attitude. And truthfully, I don't think he was quite as hate-filled as he appeared to be. I think he literally hadn't thought about a number of things. And when he was confronted, he was not going to be outthought. <laughs> he was not going to just admit, oh, maybe I'm wrong. You know, but by the time you demand to know from a black man, do you know how much a slave cost back then? You obviously have gone off left field, you know. So I think a hatred comes in more than one form. And we talked about this many years ago where we were saying slavery was definitely invested in money. It was about money. Bishop Bartholomew de las Casas gave permission, okay, Catholic bishop gave permission to enslave Africans because they were not Christians, okay? So now the money is rolling in. Lo and behold, a whole boatload of those Africans kind of caught wind of how they could get out of slavery and they started embracing Christianity. Hmm. At which point that same bishop said, nah, that's not good enough. You're actually being enslaved because you're black. Even though you become Catholic, you're now, you're also black. So that issue of skin color entered into the picture and created a whole nother level of very identifiable people to project hatred onto in addition to the fact that they no longer had the money supply, okay? And this is all over the world. There is not one place on the planet where you see dark-skinned people and lighter-skinned people, and those lighter-skinned people are not the rulers over the darker-skinned people. It's found in India, it's found in China, it's found in the Philippines, it's found in Mexico and Central South America, it's found all over the world. So we have to continue to try to get rid of that hatred that connects skin color to inferiority. We have to get, we have to work to just get rid of the colorism, okay? Or as the old uh, Muhammad Speaks newspaper used to have a regular little cartoon and the the cartoon would vary, but underneath it, it would say, and the serpent deceived the whole world, okay? And this is where some people have said, Shaitan or Iblis was the first racist. Right. He simply decided there was something better about being made from fire than being made from the mud of the earth. So he was just better, okay? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, it, it has been around for a long time and it is not going anywhere unless people of goodwill and people of courage are willing to step forward and put their talents and their lives on the line to undo this thing called racism because it is simply a fancy word for hatred, a fancy word for evil. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, uh, the the part about us uh, working together um, mm -hmm. to stop the inner segregation of ourselves, yes. um, with, uh, whether it's color, whether it's uh, religion, whether it's anything, is um, is something that we definitely have to work on. And um, I, I had something else to say, and Lord knows I can't remember what it is. But thank you again. <laughs> I am, thank I'm enjoying you. it. <laughs> thank you. Great question and great answer. Thank you. Uh, anyone else? Assalamu alaikum. I'm, I'm talking, but I'm muted. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Okay. Yes. Assalamu yes. alaikum, We miss you. I know I miss you guys too. I just can't come and see you when I want to now. Huh? Oh, well. oh. Alhamdulillah, we have Zoom and things like that. Alhamdulillah. But I, I kind of wanted to touch on that point about the economics and uh, our community having our own businesses and that sort of mm -hmm. thing like that. And yeah. um, I know this is talking about Juneteenth, but all that falls into play because I heard this on the, the earlier clip by the day with the brother down in, um, in Florida. Okay. 
And uh, I remember Abrafi, the little young brother, I think, I think Dr. Francis Chris Wellesley asked him, what did he want to be? Did he want to be a, like a leader or something like that when he grew up? And he said, mm -hmm. oh, no. And she said, why not? He said, because if you grew up to become a black leader, you get killed. Well, mm -hmm. you know, it's like in our in our community, you know, we have the the economic thing about the dollar zooms straight out of the community or what have you. But when right. you look at the uh, history of, of what has happened to us, we, we just had the big thing about uh, the Black Wall Street or whatever. It's right. like every time we rise to our own little nations within our own communities, what happens to us? Someone comes along and kind of destroys that sort of it destroys our communities. So it's kind of like we're we're traumatized at this point because deep down inside, maybe some of us feel, well, if we do this, then what's gonna happen to us? We're like targets. Yeah. So would you like to kind of address that or or just kind of delve into it a little deeper? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think that that is a very real historical challenge. It's been around, there's Tulsa, Oklahoma, there's Rosewood in Florida. There were hundreds of communities that were built by ex-slaves, okay? Because we, our ancestors were not accepted into the outer society. The um, idea of reparations never happened. So we had to do as they say, make a way out of no way. And somehow by the grace of almighty God, we did it in different forms and were quite successful. But as you said, every time African-Americans got a little toehold economically, whites who hated us, whites who resented the fact that frankly, some of us were doing quite a bit better than they were. You have people right now who have no education, who still resent Barack Obama as president. And they seem to think that they should have had that position because they're white. How could this black man have that position over any white man? And this man's got a Harvard Law degree, you know, and here's Billy Bob chewing on a straw and he basically can't count to 10, but he wants that position. He's incompetent for the position, but his ego, again, going back to Iblis, his ego is telling him that he's better than someone else. So we have had a lot of that. You know, during the time of Elijah Muhammad, I think they had acquired like about 1,600 acres of farmland somewhere, and I believe it was in Georgia. They'll they, have it, and that's um, Indiana, Detroit, kind of Indiana, and they still have it. Okay, well, okay. The one that I'm speaking of is, and I'm almost certain it was not in Indiana. They went and poisoned the water which killed off all the livestock. Is that the same one, Priscilla? No, I have vague memories of the uh, the Georgia one. I know the one I visited was the one in um, Indiana. Okay. And that's the one that um, exists and they had the, um, the bull and all of that good stuff. But okay, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, oh, yeah, but the point is we absolutely kept striving and striving. And every time we would get a little bit of a toehold, they would come and destroy it. And after we're talking 160 years post-slavery, there it has reached a point where you do have some people who are probably like, they're not ever gonna treat us right. The heck with this, I'm gonna go do my thing. And some of that boils down to that quote unquote, boys in the hood mentality. They're no longer trying to strive into that hierarchy because they've been kicked down so many times. They're just going to go off and do their own thing. And one thing that did happen with some of the music that came out of the inner city, some of that music and some of those lyrics are absolutely atrocious, absolutely atrocious. Um, but they started making money. And at first, the outer culture was like, let them go ahead and do whatever. They're just being insulting to their own people. Let them go ahead. But they were making so much money that after a while, the outer culture started trying to get in on that. In addition to the fact that all of a sudden, their young people were beginning to attach to some of that, uh, that rap music or whatever. I don't want to identify any particular uh, musical genre. But young white people were catching on to that stuff. 
and say like, oh no, we can't have our children doing this. It was okay if black people were insulting one another, you know, disrespecting one another, but we don't want our own children doing that. So we do have a number of issues. We have, I guess the best way to say it is it's going to take all of us doing whatever we can with our talents in our space to rectify this. And I have said it many a day as a friend of mine who said it so beautifully, everybody don't do the same thing. Okay, so maybe I have certain talents. I can use my talents to do what I do. I could not sing my way out of a paper bag if my life depended on it. So I'm not gonna do that. But someone else that has musical talent may be able to wake up people and encourage people through music. So we all have to do what we can in our own capabilities. And that includes the reality. First of all, we are absolutely entitled to reparations. There's no question about it, okay? The Japanese were interned for three, maybe four years and they got reparations. We were enslaved for 250 years and the victims of incredible racism ever since then. And we have nothing. And the longer it goes on, they say, but that was so long ago. Well, it's like it was only long ago because you didn't take care of it when you should have, yeah. okay? But I will say this, there is no way that white people can single-handedly fix this thing at this point. It just can't happen. It's gonna take whites talking to their people, uplifting their people, discussing critical race theory, whatever they can do in their own communities, in their churches, okay, in their social groups. It's gonna take them doing what they can and it's gonna take us doing what we can and again, it's going to be on various levels. Everybody doesn't do the same thing. But the solution has got to come because the culture is frankly going to unravel. We're seeing things in this culture that are just kind of hard to imagine. The richest country on the planet and people are just shooting at each other, killing one another. You know, and they like to pretend, you know, these mass shootings. They like to pretend the Black people are doing all this. Uh-uh. It's their people as well, trust me. So I'm just saying to say for each of us, we don't have to point the finger at someone else. We need to look inside ourselves and see what we can do to change things. And then we just have to keep doing what we do. And we have to ask Allah to bless us with the courage to continue and bless us with what we're entitled to, which is a full participatory place in this culture. Per your your coop your kupa and your references um, to uh, surahs in the Quran, you mm -hmm. uh, made some statements about it's our responsibility to if we see wrong, if we know of wrong, to address wrong, not to just say, oh well, somebody else will take care of it. Um, exactly. And I think that this is where the flaw is in our community. I mean, I'm sure we have multiple flaws um, that we're working on, but this is a flaw that I, I have some um, experience with. Okay. And, um, and that is we, um, we, we tend not to be the Muslims we're supposed to be. We, we tend not to address wrong when we see wrong. We rather um, walk away turn our heads. Um, and then the other uh, issue, which is not necessarily uh, about our community, but about our general whole community um, in the world, actually, is the inner racism amongst people of color against people of color. Okay, mm -hmm. so, um, and that's, that's really, really strong. And, you know, we can go into it and we can get it particular and I'd rather not, but that in itself is um, eroding the good work and the good um, communications that we can have uh, with one another because of those inner, um, inner feelings that one has, whether they grew up with it, um, whether they acquired it as an adult, or what, whatever the case may be, but that inner racism 
um, which has resulted in our segregation amongst uh, uh, e even Muslims um, um, and definitely of people of color, right? It's something that, as you say, we, we, we got to get a hold of. We, we got to work on it as an individual, as a group. I totally agree with you on that. And, um, you know, I would ask, I think um, we, and I mean uh, the Women's Minds of America, I think we have gotten um, much further along in that process um, because we are actually communicating and socializing and listening to one another. And we come from all, uh, all aspects of um, culture, religion, ethnicity, such on. So um, I would just um, ask my sisters to really enter, um, look in wise more and ask themselves if they have any little niggly niggly um, <laughs> things um, that could be considered or looked upon as being uh, kind of segregated or racist in some form, right? Um, and I'm going to shut up there. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, um, I think one of the positive things, first of all, like you said, the women's mosque, I love this format. This is something that is very, very powerful. And quite often when people are right in the midst of building something, exactly. creating something, they don't have time to stop and try to analyze, take notes on exactly how it's impacting other people. But in retrospect, you'll discover that it is very, very powerful. It is uplifting and it's setting an example, not only for women, but you know, we all know, there are kutbahs that have taken place at the women's mosque that would never ever be done at any other venue. So that is a very powerful thing. I think another part of it is the younger people are not quite as hung up about colorism at, you know, quote unquote, cultural differences. And we do have cultural differences. In fact, Allah made us different so that we could come to know one another. And anyone who has heard me speak over who knows how many years, I call myself a frustrated anthropologist. I was an anthropology major. And I just love all different kinds of people. And, you know, how do you wear your hijab? And what do you all eat for dinner? And I just always want to know these things about people. Now, there are some people who are more insular. They really just, they get hung up on what they do and anything that's outside of what they do is not only different, but they see it as deviant. They don't see it as just different and alhamdulillah. So I think that's part of it. The other thing I would uh, address is, we know there's a lot of wonderful stuff happening down at Isla LA. Okay, those are younger Muslims. And it's kind of funny to me when I speak of younger Muslims, because it's like, oh, everybody's younger to me at this point, you know, but uh, they are, the younger generation is doing it a little bit differently. We know the younger generation just kind of was oh, relieved to discover that Islam was already here and they did not have to just try to build it from scratch here in this culture because so many of them are first, well, their parents are, uh, were born outside of this country. They're his first generation. They're glad to see that Islam is kind of here and they can just kind of build on it and identify with it. And they're talking about eating bean pie. You know, uh, uh, Sister Karen English and I went to a seminar in Granada a few years back and this was kind of like we're talking about critical race theory now. Back then, they were pretty much talking about critical Islamic theory, okay? And I went and I spent pretty much my adult life dis uh, discovering things about African and African-American people. And I'm sitting in this seminar. We're in Granada. It's gorgeous. I mean, we're in the land of the last of that Islamic empire. 
And they're talking about the rhetoric of revolution, liberation theology, Malcolm X, Fannie Lou Hamer. And I'm listening, I'm like, my Lord, I'm hearing more black history in this room than I have heard in the last 20 years. You know, it's because we are presenting to the world a model for how to come up out of chattel slavery, how to embrace Islam and make it work for us as a people and how to embrace Islam as God intended for all of us to bow down to him in submission and for all of us to find a place of enjoyment with one another, regardless of culture or maybe because of different cultures, okay? Uh, the other point I do wanna make very clearly is that that intraracial thing, you know, we have interracial, so that's outside of your, your identifiable group, but intraracial colorism, mm. again, it's found in every ethnicity in the world. It just is there because 500 years of European hegemony has just convinced the world, like I said, and Satan that was and the serpent deceived the whole world. We don't have to continue to be different or more to the point, to the point, we don't have to be at one another's throats just because somebody set up a system for their benefit, but it doesn't work for humanity. And so I'm always truly, I feel blessed when I meet someone of a different culture and I can find something in common with them. Like I said, oh, how do you wear your hijab? Whatever. Uh, that to me is enjoyable. Uh, and I've done, I've, I've done some traveling. I'd like to do some more. But I have been so many places in the world where people looking at me, and especially if I have my hair cut, I have my hair on display, they may have a better idea. But I've had people ask me if I'm Egyptian, if I'm Arab. I had somebody say, oh, you look just like years ago. You look just like my little sister in Lebanon. And I'm like, I thought I was African-American, mm -hmm. you know. But as you go around the world, as more people are coming here from different places around the world, there is the very real issue that we have a lot more in common with the rest of the world than we realize. A lot of the people who have come here from other cultures, you know, they're beginning to see, wait a minute, they, they know they were colonized, you know, by the British or French or whoever, they know that. But until they came here, they did not realize how very clearly these divisions were being made and they were not for the benefit of humanity. And so that's where we all have to work together to find a place of self-respect and respect for one another. And I think it's happening. And like I said, especially among the younger people, look what happened with George Floyd. Oh my goodness. People came out all around the world to say, well, wait a minute, did they really? Did that police officer really lean on that man's neck for over nine minutes and literally murder him slowly? And somehow they're going to pretend that it's not so bad because after all, George Floyd had spent a little time in jail or had some fentanyl in his system or whatever. They're like, no, that doesn't matter. The point is someone killed him under color of authority and it can't... It, no human being can think that's okay, okay? So people all over the world rose up. They thought Black Lives Matter was just a little movement here in the United States. All of, a, all of a sudden, it was all over the world. So there are people, and again, I like to point out younger people who are saying, we can't continue this. We cannot. We have to have, quote unquote, freedom, justice, and equality for all people. And so they stood for George Floyd, okay? And it will happen again because the days of chattel slavery are over. 
the days of rampant British European hegemony are over. A new wave is here. Islam is here in the United States. They didn't mean to bring it. Okay. <laughs> okay. There's Omar Ibn Said. Okay. And I want to show you something. That picture is connected to, let's see if you can see. This is an actual writing from Omar Ibn Said. Okay. The man was brilliant. And what this actually is, and if you, I can't tell backward or forward, but it does begin with Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Yeah. And that is actually Surah Al-Mulk, okay? Mm -hmm. And if I may read it? Yes. Okay. It says, in the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, may God bless our Lord Sayyidina Muhammad. Blessed be he in whose hand is the mulk and who has power over all things. He created death and life that he might put you to the proof and find out which of you had the best work. He is the mighty, the forgiving one. He created seven heavens arrayed one above the other. You will not see a flaw in the merciful's creation. Turn up your eyes. Can you detect a single crack? Then look once more and yet again, your eyes in the end will grow dim and weary. We have adorned the lowest heaven with lamps, missiles to pelt the devils with. We have prepared the scourge of fire for these and the scourge of fire for those who deny their Lord. An evil fate. When they are flung into its flames, they shall hear it roaring. Okay. So again, if you look at that, okay. This man was captured in West Africa brought here and he wrote his own uh, his autobiography and he's not the only one again that's Omar Ibn Said right here and then let me just show you this is can you see that okay this is Yaro Mahmoud okay and he's the one whose picture hangs in the Georgetown Washington DC library to this day and he is the one that frankly looks quite a bit like uh, Yassin Bey or most Diff. It's a very peaceful man, you can tell. Is, is he the one that within the past couple of years they reinterred his bones, his remains? Uh, the Muslim about a couple of years ago. Is he the one that they reinterred him? Uh, I forget where it was, but they had an article in the Muslim journal and they had a, a ceremony for him. You know, I don't know for sure, but I believe you're correct. I do remember a reinterment of a Muslim, and it was in Washington, D.C., or the, yeah. the surroundings of Washington, D.C. Right. Uh -huh. yeah. So uh, yeah. would you, Mahasin, would you be willing to double check on that and get back do, to me? I could do that, yes. Uh -huh. But about maybe two or three years back, that was done. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. They, buried they buried him in the correct way of a, of a Muslim and everything after all, about a hundred some odd years. So that was. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. By the way, sisters, if you want some information, Mahasim is the one. She she keeps up with a lot of stuff. We're waiting for your khutbah, Mahasim. <laughs> <laughs> I, told, I told you I don't I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that. <laughs> I just this do one, one <laughs> With the lighting, I know it's hard to see. But this is Abdul Rahman uh, uh, Ibn Ibrahim Asori. And this is the one who was known as the prince among slaves. And he really was a prince who was kidnapped and brought here. This is the one who eventually President John Quincy Adams freed under the demands of the Sultan of Morocco. And he and his wife went back to uh, Liberia, which was a colony for quote unquote ex-slaves, uh, but he never was able to get back to his home, which was in Futajalo in the Senegambia. And his wife continued to try to free her other children. So we have these wonderful examples. And what I find is the more information we find out about the history of us in this country and in the Caribbean, because the truth of the matter is 
the vast majority of enslaved Africans did not come to the United States. Right. They went to Brazil. They went to Central and South America. There, there were over 50 million people in Brazil, Africans in Brazil. Mm-hmm. They counted, I'm thinking at least 50 years ago. And then um, our president, our former president, Baby Bush, was talking to the president of Brazil. And somehow the president of Brazil said something about black people. And baby Bush said, you have black people in Brazil? (laughs) 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 Can't make these things up. I just can't, you know. That's it, that's it. But it's not, like everybody knows that he's not gonna know that. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) he just, so this, it it tells you something about how You know, there are people who assume on their privilege, but they simply are not as well versed as some of the very people that they would like to be, quote unquote, superior to, you know. Um, So so that's my soapbox on that. But thank you, Mahasan. I appreciate it because I know they did find a burial ground under Wall Street in New York City. And there was a ceremony there to reinter some Africans, but I don't know if they identified them as Muslims. So I would really like to get a confirmation from you, Mahasan. Hey, I will check into that. Okay, thank you. Afri, can you talk a little bit about being a griot and a jelly and like what that process is like? It sounds a little bit, or it sounds similar to the Rawiyat or the Hadith scholars. Um, So I'm curious to know what the process is like. How how do you begin and um, what's the history of that? Okay, Uh, well, we were in Mali a few years ago, in fact, we were, we were going to Timbuktu, which is, you know, the great Islamic uh, uh, scholarly city in Mali. And it's on the Sahel. So it's, you know, it's very much impacted at this point. It wasn't always like that, but the Sahel, you know, the desert is just coming further and further in, but it's still just a marvelous place to go. Uh, we were in Bamako, which is the capital of Mali on the way to Timbuktu. And we're in this really nice restaurant. The food was wonderful. And we were sitting there and the music was going on. And our guide said, do you hear that music? And like, yeah. And they were playing the Quora. I don't know if you, you've seen it, but it's like a big calabash and it has 21 strings on it. So it kind of looks like a big fat banjo. Okay, mm-hmm. but with 21 strings. And the music is absolutely, I mean, it just is so melodic. It's just kind of carry away. He said, are you listening to that? And we said, yeah. He said, that particular music was played 800 years ago in the time of Sundiata Keita, who was the Lion King of Mali. Okay. And when we hear about the, that little cartoon, The Lion King, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's where they got it from, the Lion King of Mali. Okay, his name was Sundiata Keita. Um, but they they literally have people because they had an oral tradition. Not only does Africa have an oral tradition for its history, it also has a history of passing down information through music and through dance. Okay, and if you if you know how to interpret the music or the dance. You learn the history of the people. So they have these griots, or and it's G-R-I-O-T, but it's pronounced griot, or jelly, D-J-E-L-L-I. Um, these are people who are in families that have been the oral historians, the keepers of the history of the people going back a thousand years. They just know the history. And so, you know, how do you get to be a jelly? Well. Or Griot, well, you, your father before you. Well, how did he get to be one? His father before him. Well, how did he get to be one? His father before him. You know, and so it's like the story about the um, the earth rests on the back of a turtle. You know, well, what's the turtle resting on? Another turtle. Well, what's that turtle resting on? Another turtle. Until the frustration sets in and somebody says, it's turtles all the way down. You know, <laughs> so... so uh, that is basically the history of it. They just have people who have been doing this for 
hundreds and hundreds of years. They just simply, you know, going back each generation teaches that. And these are people who, like I said, they're family traditions, okay? And that's also where, when Alex Haley went to the Gambia trying to find Kunta Kente, and he went, somebody said, well, this jelly over here knows the history, he can tell it to you. Mm -hmm. So this old man is sitting there and he's telling the story. And Alex Haley's like, excuse me, but but I wanna know about Kunta Kente. And his guy kind of nudged and said, that's not the way it works. He's going to tell the history. You need to sit and listen. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so Alex Haley was sitting there and he's listening. It's hot. He's tired. This jelly is going on for hours. And he's just listening and trying to listen because now he's about ready to pass out from the heat (laughs) and whatnot. And just as he was nodding off, he heard this jelly say, Kunta Kente. And he, goes, he said, wait, wait, ask him to go back. And so the jelly went back just a little bit. And that's where he found out that his ancestor, Kunta Kente, was taken from the Gambia. And that that jelly or that griot was able to tell that story. Okay. Um, but he knew he knew 100 years before then, wow. you know. And, he and that, that's actually the how the slaves um, survived because of that history of telling stories, um, putting signs in song, um, putting signs in cloth and and whatever. That's how they um, got through and passed the slave master um, and even during the uh, um, Underground Railroad. Oh yeah, absolutely. There are so, we find it, Mahasin is a master, a mistress quilter, queen of the quilts, uh, we find it in the quilting mm-hmm. symbols. We find it in the, the songs. I mean, what is the song? Steal away to Jesus. They were talking about stealing away to that first slave ship, which was named Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, swing low, sweet chariot, come for to carry me home. Harriet Tubman would sing that song and people would know she was out there in the bush somewhere. Join her because she's getting ready to, to take you to freedom. Coming for the carry me home. The number, I wish I were more well-versed in music because the history of African-Americans in this country, there's no question. It is deeply, deeply uh, just intertwined with all of those gospel songs. And as a Muslim, I can say, and I imagine every other African-American Muslim has had the same experience. I could never just out of hand dismiss that those gospel songs Mm -hmm. because there is so much history in there there was so much faith in those songs those were people who prayed and prayed and prayed sincerely to Allah to God whatever to be delivered from this system that they found themselves in Um, so I, I imagine, I'm not that familiar with any other cultures that do the oral tradition, but I'm sure there are others that did that. There were any number of written languages in West Africa, okay? But Arabic became the dominant written language because of trade coming from the Maghreb, coming across the desert, and so Arabic became the um, dominant way of writing stuff, but there are countless volumes of information that are written with the Arabic script, but they are actually the, the languages of West Africa. Hmm. But, you know, if you go to Timbuktu, you'll see them. They're there, 100,000 volumes, okay? You'll see them. Unfortunately, I personally, could not read them. I just couldn't, you know. Um, I also had this, I knew when I went, because I like to collect certain things, I knew I was going to bring back one of those manuscripts by hook or crook. Somebody was going to give up one of those manuscripts, right? Uh, But when I went and I saw how very, very, and this was before they had that invasion, you know, where they were 
tearing up Timbuktu. I think we went in maybe 2007, okay? Uh, but I was gonna bring one of those manuscripts back and people who know me know, I have been known to get hold to stuff that people <laughs> thought they weren't gonna give up, you know? <laughs> but, uh, but when I got there and I saw how very poor the people were mm -hmm. and that everybody was fascinated by these manuscripts and wanted to come to Timbuktu and get these manuscripts and they wanted to take them out. And mm -hmm. the people said, no, we've had these things buried for 500, 600 years. No, you will not take our history out of this country. Mm -hmm. But if the Ford Foundation and some of these other foundations want to set up some air conditioned libraries here and provide funding to translate this, fine. But no, you can't and, take and digitize it too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But like I said, when I saw how poor the people were, mm -hmm. I realized I could not take one of those manuscripts. I was willing to give up whatever it took to get it. But I thought, you know what? I need to tell people if you want to see these manuscripts, get on a plane, take your money, come stay in their hotel, you know, eat in their restaurants, buy what they have to sell, and you can see the manuscripts. But no, you cannot come here and just take one and take it out of the country. Somebody else takes another, just balkanizing the entire library, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but again, a lot of the manuscripts are in Arabic, but they're also the language of Timbuktu, okay? The, most of the people there that we met spoke four or five different languages. They're speaking Tamachak, Bella, Fulani, you name it. And of course they had to speak to me in, air, in English because that's what I know best, you know? Um, but I'm just saying all of this to say that there's so much still to be uncovered Mm -hmm. And that's the important thing that we each need to do. And we only have a certain amount of time on this planet to do it. Mm -hmm. And then we have to turn it over to the next generation and they have to do what they can do. But ultimately between you and your creator, each of us, we know if we're doing as much as we can, nobody else gets to judge one another. But did you get up this morning, get your Pfizer prayer? Did you get up this morning and do some reading? Did you get up this morning and do a little research? You know, whatever you could do, as the expression goes, each one teach one. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm I'm very positive, frankly, that younger people are going to bring this along. You know, so. We have time for just one last question and then we'll wrap it up. So please yeah. go ahead. Yeah, she mentioned she was going to touch on the correlation between Juneteenth and Palestine with their colors oh, of the right. flag and everything. Yes, okay. I want yes. to. Yes. Okay. Well, I just happen to have <laughs> a little something here. Yes, that was that was fascinating. Um, first of all, I could, like I said, I'm a frustrated anthropologist, but I'm also an artist of sorts, mostly because I, my father was a commercial artist. And I kind of, well, we just came up, you know, attracted to art and colors and whatever. So mm -hmm. I interpret quite a bit of the world through art. Um, but I got some information. It turns out that the Palestinians found themselves, I think it was about 1970. I, I don't want to read this. I have the notes here. But it was about 1970 when they were doing different kinds of art shows and of course, art is never just for art's sake. Art has always been a tool to teach. It's always been a, a tool for resistance, you know, to whatever. And so the Israeli government came along, destroyed the people's art. They confiscated a lot of it. They shut down, I think it was three or four art museums in Ramallah specifically, and they just confiscated stuff. Okay, uh, so at one point, this one artist whose name is, um, let me just real quick, um, Khalif Harani, okay? Um, he said, well, wait a minute, what can we? You're taking everything, what can we show? And they said, well, you can't show this flag. And then he said, well, what can we show? This uh, Israeli official said, even if you paint a watermelon, we are going to confiscate it. We're going to confiscate it. Mm -hmm. 
So that actually kind of triggered in their mind. And there's this wonderful, wonderful um, artist in Palestine. His name is Sleeman, I think, S-L-I-M-A-N, Mansour. It's beautiful, beautiful artwork. Uh, kind of reminds you of Diego Rivera because he definitely does art for the people. He does peasant art. He does stuff that people can relate to in their daily lives, okay? And he was the one who said, well, when they did this, it triggered in their mind. Well, why not use watermelon? After all, it's red, black, green, and white, the colors of their flag, okay? So that's when they started doing that. And um, so they, you know, that created problems, but it got to the point where the Israeli government was so upset because the young people were doing all kinds of things. They were making watermelon tattoos. They were just <laughs> taking a slice of watermelon and just walking around with a slice of watermelon. You know, they actually arrested teenagers for walking around with a slice of watermelon, you know. Um, and so, they, you know, they, um, they, they were resisting in whatever ways they could, you know. And so this one artist, his name is Khaled Hurani, okay? He was apparently the first one that thought to use watermelon as his art form. And if you Google, you can see some of his artwork. It's really magnificent. And uh, he said he was quite taken back at how it just snowballed with these young people just, just taking on this image that he had decided he wanted to uh, use as a representation of Palestinian uh, freedom fighters, so to speak. And he said, I'm happy that it brings attention to the Palestinian cause, okay? And so, as I said in my kutbah, inshallah, next year this time, maybe African-American Muslims celebrating Juneteenth, Palestinian Muslims celebrating watermelon, okay? <laughs> we, we can all enjoy watermelon, celebrate it together, as a symbol of freedom, a symbol of striving. And of course, for African-Americans, there has always been that stereotype that ah, African-Americans don't want to eat watermelon. Well, a common fool knows that's not true. People eat watermelon all over the world, mm -hmm. uh, number one. Number two, when it's hot outside, if you don't eat drink, uh, if you don't eat watermelon, it's probably something a little wrong upstairs, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but maybe we can use it as a symbol to highlight Palestinian resistance and the, you know, the resistance that African-Americans have, have had to do with the red, black, and green flag that Marcus Garvey invented to represent, you know, Pan-Africanism. And um, so you go to any kind of celebration among African-Americans, you know, especially Juneteenth, because it's when it's hot, you're going to see some watermelon, some soul food, and there's nothing wrong with that. Why would we not have food that identifies us as a people? You know, barbecue, watermelon, collard greens, peach cobbler. These are the things that represent us. Nobody else thinks, oh, you said Chinese food. Now, somehow Chinese people should be embarrassed because you identified it as Chinese food. Well, it is. It came from China. Chinese people invented it. And tastes delicious. It's Chinese food. Same thing with Mexican food. I mean, I'm actually on my way over to Acapulco. <laughs> <laughs> <This afternoon. laughs> so anyway, so um, I will just, if I may just uh, mention yes. some of these artists, okay? Just to say their names. Sleeman Mansour, okay? Khalid Harani, Sami Bukhari, Sarah Hatahan, who is actually from uh, Jordan. And she did a, a beautiful art piece. And I, the name of it is Watermelon Resistance. Okay. So it's, it's something to see. She's from Jordan. And again, her name is Sarah Hatahan, uh, Nabil Anani, and Isam Badr. So those are six art, artists. And let me just for the heck of it, I don't know if, yeah, I'm sure it's yeah, that helps to see the spelling. <laughs> but at any rate, if you just Google Palestinian watermelon, it'll show up. Okay. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing so much. Wow, this is the first, first time you got an applause online. <laughs> Thank you um, so much. I appreciate it. Um, could I say one other thing? Yes, please, please. Okay, we have a Katiba here today who I didn't hear from. And uh, I have Gail. a <laughs> I have a lot of respect for Gail. Yes and for her information. Yeah. And I'd like to share some information about Gail. Oh. Gail is a new grandmother. <gasps> she has her first little grandson, <laughs> Cairo Julian. <laughs> so I just wanted to say congratulations and you know, welcome to the world to little Cairo Julian and alhamdulillah. I know you're going to enjoy Thank you. It. Thank you. I, I leave in the morning. I can't wait. Thank you. Uh, you're going to cry, Gail. Pretty hugs and smooches and kisses from me. Uh, yes. Exactly. Exactly. Spoil him. Spoil him. The next generation. The next generation is coming. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, thank you all. And inshallah, we'll see you again next month. Thank you, Hasma. Thank you. Thank you for coming out. And uh, make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter to get all the announcements, inshallah. So thank you again. And thank you, Sister Alberfi, and also Dr. Shalkut for hosting. Thank you. <laughs> we had some, some tech issues, so she, she really helped out. Um, and inshallah, looking forward to the next time. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Assalamualaikum. Bye. Assalamualaikum.